Hi there, and a very warm welcome to Season 3, Episode 31 of People Soup. It's Ross McIntosh here. Whether, for instance, you're a nurse in a hospice who has to go down to a room at the end and have a really difficult and emotional conversation with somebody that they need to have, or whether we're in a different kind of workplace where you're a manager and you know you have to sit somebody down and help them to understand maybe that there's something that's not working out right that it might be need to be a change in behavior or they they're not meeting some targets they've been really striving for and you know it's going to be a difficult conversation because you're, you're not a monster you're not looking forward to upsetting them yet it's a conversation that absolutely has to happen and although at one level those look like really different kinds of conversations functionally they're almost identical So some of the stuff that we use to support our colleagues in having difficult conversations or doing a difficult thing in a a very kind of health setting, I think have potential to be applied absolutely anywhere. And, And in working in my local hospice on exactly this point, we ended up coming up with a little almost routine that people can use, which we've since used there a lot. And I use a lot in my training now, which is all about the idea of how to arrive properly. P-Supers, thanks for tuning in. This week, it's part two of my chat with clinical psychologist and brilliant human Dr. Ray Owen. You've just heard him talking about arriving well in a conversation. Whether it's a palliative care nurse about to have a really difficult and emotional conversation with a fellow human, or a manager preparing for a difficult performance conversation, we can prepare to arrive well in both of these scenarios. We cover loads more in our chat. You'll hear about his workshop at the Association for Contextual Behavioural Science, or ACBS, UK and Republic of Ireland conference in November. Please note that the main content of this episode was recorded and edited before the latest announcement about the conference. It will now be a two-day event on the 16th and 17th of November 2020, and the pre-conference workshops will now be incorporated into those two days. You can find out all about it and sign up at acbsukroi.co.uk. PeopleSoup is a community of people who are interested in behavioural science at work and how we can make it accessible, fun and useful for ourselves and each other. At work, behavioural science has the capacity to enhance our well-being, help us be the person we want to be more often and provide us with perspectives to enable cooperation, collaboration and innovation. It was psychologist Abraham Maslow who said, a first-rate soup is more creative than a second-rate painting. And that was the inspiration for this podcast. More than ever, the world of work is a heady mix of people, behaviour, events and challenges. When the blend is right, it can be first-rate. Behavioural science and psychology has a lot to offer in terms of recipes, ingredients, seasoning, spices and utensils. So welcome to People's Soup where we aim to nourish the mind and flourish at work. Reviews are in for our last episode, and that was part one of my conversation with Dr. Ray Owen. From Chris Winson, who curates the fabulous 365 Days of Compassion, he said, A good podcast episode leaves you with a big smile, some thoughts to mull over, and a sense of admiration for the guest and the host too. And oh my, does this episode deliver on that. Excellent work, both. And Dr. Rose Horton-Smith on Twitter said, Such a fabulous listen. Having worked with Ray for 13-ish years, he is the kindest, 
most knowledgeable and supportive colleague I have ever worked with. He taught me all things psychological and is the coolest guy I know. Thanks to Chris and Rose and to all of you who've listened, commented and shared. In other news, I noticed a tweet from Dr Shane McLaughlin. He said, Celebrating getting a manuscript under review at a top journal, submitting a revised manuscript to another top journal and finishing the proofs for another journal article. And it looks like he was about to have a sip on a single malt, which was very well deserved. Excellent news, Shane. More news. I did a book launch in Sydney, Australia. Pay supers, get me. It was for the book Swipe Right on Your Best Self by Eric Winters. It's a fabulous book, a guide to daring greatly. You can check out the launch interview on catchup at rossmackintosh.co.uk. And finally in news, I'm really excited to announce a new training program called Flexibility at Work. And it brings ACT and contextual behavioural science to the workplace, for individuals, for teams and leaders. This is a joint project with P-Super and Guru of Organisational Flexibility, Dr Annie Gascoigne. Doesn't everyone deserve some evidence-based behavioural science in their lives? We're really proud of the programme we've developed and it's produced in collaboration with Contextual Consulting. And you can join me and our Annie, hashtag McGazza, for a free webinar to hear all about it on the 9th of July at 10am UK time. So register for that. What have you got to gain? There's a link in the show notes or go to contextualconsulting.co.uk. If you do enjoy the podcast, I'd love it if you would subscribe, rate and review it, whatever platform you're on. It helps us amplify our voice and reach more people with stuff that could be useful. As well as ratings and reviews, I've also set up a Ko-Fi page for the podcast. I guess you might pronounce that coffee, but I'm not exactly sure. Anyway, I love this podcast. It really chimes with my personal values, and I do it all in my spare time. If you enjoy the podcast and would be willing to support me in my endeavours, you can head over to ko-fi.com forward slash people soup and buy me a coffee. Well, actually, it's more of a pledge of £3 to support the podcast. I'll also give you a thank you shout out on the show. For now, get a brew on and have a listen to part two of my conversation with Dr. Ray Owen. we get the joy of you being one of the pre-conference workshops. So I'd just like to spend a bit of time exploring that with you. Now, let me check to see if I've got the title right, first of all. I think it's called Act for Long-Term Health Conditions. Adjustment to Long-Term Health Conditions, How Psychological Flexibility Can Help. And then I've put in brackets, open to all. Open to all. It sounds kind of quite Victorian, that. You can imagine it on a playbill, open to all. (laughs) There's a specific reason for that. It's a genuine issue with training. It's knowing what you're pitching and trying to get that fine balance between people who already know some things about an area getting extra things, but also if people are new to an area, being genuinely comprehensible and giving them some sensible, usable foundation. I think, you know, it's beholden on us to be fairly clear that if this is one where we're kind of expecting you already to know what the six core processes of ACT are, we'll say that up front because we're not going to spend a lot of time in the session. We're going to go straight on to how do we apply, how do we do this? But equally, if we say open to all, we mean open to all. If if you've kind of heard about this ACT thing and people have told you it's good, so you're going to go to just the pre-con. Or you might go speak on and the conference and to learn some more. But you're going to walk in there and you're thinking, what's this fusion business that people are talking about? That's fine. That that's okay. You're our people. 
and there will be a lot of people in there of course do know the basics so we still need to give them the new insight new perspective new skills whilst not leaving people who are saying what the hell's this act business behind so that's that's the reason for being really clear about the open to all see your creativity shining out there as well your capacity to switch perspectives and think about how it can be as genuinely open as, as it can all about the workability isn't it it's about being useful so we're not doing it in order to do it we're doing it in order that people walk out of that day with something they didn't walk in with that's a useful thing to them and hopefully to other people they come into contact with professionally or, or, or in some other way so very much looking forward to it and yeah the practicalities we don't yet know in terms of whether it's going to be in person or not but i think in the last few years lots of us have been doing a bit more online I work a lot with Joe Oliver, who lays on a lot of training, and he's introduced me to running in-person training sessions where we've also got like a a distance web-based thing going on simultaneously. And so we've learned a lot from that as well. We got some feedback that people do seem to appreciate it. You know, you're doing most of the stuff in the room, and then you typically you're setting people off on a task in pairs, discuss this, practice this skill. And at that moment, you walk over to the camera and say, okay, so those guys are doing this. What I'm going to suggest to you is we're going to do this and let's have feedback coming in through the chat channel. And it takes a little while to get the hang of it, but I think the current circumstances, lockdown, etc., we've had to look seriously at these things rather than just do a little bit of experiential avoidance where it feels a bit funny. Or, no, no, it's not quite as good as it's. No, no, it's not quite as good. It's not quite as human as it. It's not quite as human. Okay, we won't do it. You know, we've had to sort of, you know, willingly expose ourselves to these feelings in the service of doing something rather than nothing. Who knows by November the how, the what, hopefully, should be the same whichever way we do it. We talked about ACT for long-term health conditions, and that could be broadly for all physical health conditions. There's a tradition of, of looking at the psychological problems arising in physical health as seeing, as we've done to a certain extent recently with improving access to psychological therapies initiatives, the IAPT initiatives, moving into long-term conditions of saying things like anxiety, depression, we know that people with long-term physical health conditions are more prone to them and that those conditions are a driving factor within them. Therefore, in helping people deal with those mild to moderate mental health issues, we should be looking at that. And that's absolutely right. What I'll be arguing is that we can look a little bit broader than that. It's not so much that the problem is anxiety and depression and here are some of the causative factors it's kind of turning that on its head it's saying the task is how do you live well in the presence of a change in your physical health or limitations ongoing in your physical health anxiety may show up sadness may show up anger may show up yeah absolutely but the bigger issue is how do i live a fulfilling life a life that is worthwhile that has joy in it has meaningful activity in it in the presence of factors that may limit me Now, that's the message of psychological flexibility anyway, not just in in physical health. My approach to this kind of teaching tends to be to emphasise that we're talking about, within ACT terms, universal processes. You know, so that's stuff around fusion, avoidance, distance from values, uh, loss of contact with the present moment. That's stuff we talk a lot about in acceptance commitment therapy, in all applications of it. Universal processes, meaning that not just present in people with identify problems but in me as I sit here you Ross as you sit here our P-supers as I sit home all doing some of this so universal processes specific contexts so those processes are taking place in particular contexts I mean the clues in the name of our movement the contextual behavioral science 
So at the very least, one argument is health is a context. And that context brings different challenges. And it also shapes what behaviors are going to lead you to the outcomes you want. So in teaching this, there's a lot of emphasis on looking at the context of health and how physical health shifts our context externally in terms of things like work, relationships with families, uh, social things like wealth, housing, mobility, and also internally, thoughts, feelings, physical experiences. So that's our context. And then we look at the behaviours. And the behaviours may be things like learning new skills, learning to pace yourself, changing your diet, showing up for treatments, doing your physio, engaging with other people, still having a social life and, and encouragement with others when you can't eat with them or your speech is, is profoundly affected by stroke, say. So how are you still going to get the outcomes, the consequences that you want? Engagement, presence with people, fun, usefulness, you know, whatever your values dictate. How are you going to get them? Because the context now means that the old way of doing it might not work anymore. How can we find ways that lead you towards those values and then deal with the difficult thoughts and feelings that show up and get in the way? Brilliant. I'm sold. It's so engaging <laughs> to hear you talk about this. And I just imagine that multiplied by a workshop. We must get many insights from you in the application of the ACT processes. I think it's important to give examples because otherwise it can be very theoretical, mm. very heady. So when I'm writing, it's organized around fictionalized, averaged out case studies, as is my teaching. So we, we always kind of follow through two or three people we meet at the beginning of the day who are then going to conveniently illustrate all the points I want them to illustrate as we go through. And okay, so this would apply to them. So here's this guy who's always been very physical, ex-services, you know, digging his garden, all that malarkey. And now he has to use a wheelchair. Okay, so all these big, long words, these big, fancy concepts, how does that apply to him? And whether or not he agrees to go to his daughter's wedding because he doesn't want to be seen in a wheelchair. It all collapses down to single moments. I'm going, I'm not going. We need to address the big all-round structural stuff, but it falls down to individual moments that are the choices, whether we move towards the stuff that matters in our lives, or we end up being completely understandably, our behavior gets driven by moving away from the stuff we don't want. And the trouble is, you can do that, but two things are true. One, the, the, the difficult stuff will follow you anyway. Second thing is, you live a narrower life. However, within physical health particularly, the thing is, the way you go about living by your values has to change sometimes. Because some of the ways that you were working perfectly successfully, thank you, are just taken away from you by your illness. One of the examples that I talk about, may, may well come up in the training, I don't know, is about letting go of kind of roles that have been almost self-defining. So, for instance, if somebody has been a teacher, and, and they've really been about being a teacher, been enthusiastically that teacher, and now they can't do it anymore for physical reasons. I looked at it through a sort of psychological perspective lens. What was it they were getting out of being a teacher? Because we know that's a hellishly tough job at the moment. It's a really difficult one to get through. So if they loved it, what was it they loved about it? And from an act point of view, we might say, okay, it's their own values maybe. So for this person, being a teacher allowed them to live by their values of nurturing, usefulness, creativity, teamwork. And you've got all of those things in the one place. Plus, you know, money to keep a roof over your head and to feed your family, which is great. And now you can't do it anymore. And this isn't some psychological reluctance we might be able to get over. No, you can't do it anymore because of this condition. You've got advancing motor neuron disease. You can't move, you can't speak, whatever. Those values still exist for the person. We need to find other ways that they can live by those values. But 
we might not be able to find them all in the same place. You got them all in one hit in teaching. So now one of the things I often talk about, you have to unbundle the values. You might need to get your ability to nurture here. So by looking after pet, looking after your plants, contributing to the local food bank. You might get your teamwork here by helping out in some little local community initiative, if you can do a little bit towards that. You might get your sense of creativity over here by, I don't know, begin to write poetry or by thinking of different things you can eat. So you can still live by all those values, but you might have to unbundle them and work on them separately rather than saying, I can't teach, therefore all of those values are now absent from my life. And that's part of the work. Everybody routinely does it, whether they've heard of this model or not. But this gives us a model and a framework for approaching it that can really help. Mm, I love that it can, that framework can be applied in every interaction or every setting, I guess, with, with yeah, friends, family, absolutely. job, relationship with health professionals. And a big bit of my teaching is not with psychologists. I mean, I do teach psychologists and the sort of specialist teachings often towards psychology. But most of the stuff I do, particularly stuff to do with the NHS, is mental nurses to doctors. Interestingly, I, I will mention ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, but only briefly, because acceptance is a word that sometimes has other meanings for people in this area. It's a good conversation to have, but acceptance is a bit sticky. The T in acceptance and commitment therapy is therapy, obviously. And the whole point is, I do therapy, you know, I'm a psychological therapist, I've got a piece of paper and everything. But most people I work with, I'm not asking them to do psychotherapy or counselling or anything. I'm asking them to have the conversation, supportive conversation with people. And we can use the psychological flexibility model to inform that without turning anybody into a therapist or without changing the nature of your job. Because if I think about my colleagues who are clinical nurse specialists or palliative care nurse specialists, like Macmillan nurses, they have really tough and really important supportive conversations with people all the time they're already seeing the people who are suffering most if this model can help give them a bit of a framework and some extra tools to help see how they can move things forward a bit that's way more important than sorting out a form of therapy that you refer to a therapist for then a small number of people really do end up coming through to me because you know really kind of complex problems and stuff so the psychological flexibility model is way wider than the acceptance of commitment therapy and hopefully that's one of the things we'll be reflecting in this workshop that there will be things even though it's only a one-day workshop every workshop should be head and heart and hands so head stuff that you understand and learn afresh heart stuff you experience and, and sort of feel so there'll be experiential exercises that will make us look at our own health and, and context and hands okay you're not going to get massive amount of very complex stuff but you people will go away with one or two things that might help change their conversation with somebody with a health issue that helps them be more able to elicit what matters to them and how to support them in moving towards that rather than away from it sounds marvelous so for <laughs> Everyone listening to this segment of the podcast, you can sign up for Ray's workshop on the ACBS website. And for P-Supers more widely who haven't heard of the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science, we would welcome you with open arms too at the conference or just come along to Ray's workshop. If that's really interested, excited you, intrigued you, please do consider coming along. Absolutely. And it may well be that even if people can't attend the whole thing and maybe even can't attend this component of it on that day, if we do end up with a mixed online live format, it may well be that people will be able to access 
a recorded thing subsequently. I should say, of course, is other resources are available. So there's lots of stuff out there. If you kind of look around, look on the Contextual Science website, do do some YouTube searches, just kind of get involved in the community, look in the right places on Twitter, you will see loads of stuff on this that can sort of help you begin to absorb some of these principles that might just help for you and help for the people you, you support. Great. Thank you. I'm just going to fix my headphones again. This bloody <laughs> hair. Right. You, you, you need a sort of Bjorn Borg style headband, tolling headband. Oh, now you're talking. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, in my youth, one of the hairstyles I had, people used to say I resembled John McEnroe. I had that. Did, did you ever get Art that. Garfunkel? The, the, the issue was, I mean, as, as my hairline has receded a little, if I do regrow it longer, it just goes like a straight up in that very Art Garfunkel manner. I think there's potentially to start a whole new podcast just talking about our hair. Now, it turns out when I edited this that there are two fabulous takeaways from our array. So here they are. Ray, you are cleared for takeoff. Now, Ray, you know our people soup is skewed towards the workplace, us as humans in the workplace, interacting with each other, getting stuff done. Is there an angle you could give us on, on your body of work about the workplace? Yeah, one of the beauties of this way of working is this sort of universality. The, although the precise shape of the things we might have to do or the shape of the setting we're in might be very different from each other. Actually, some of the human processes within it are the same. Whether, for instance, you're a nurse in a hospice who has to go down to a room at the end and have a really difficult and emotional conversation with somebody that they need to have, or whether we're in a different kind of workplace where you're a manager and you know you have to sit somebody down and help them to understand maybe that there's something that's not working out right, that it might be need to be a change in behaviour or they're, they're not meeting some targets they've been really striving for. And you know it's going to be a difficult conversation because you're not a monster, you're not looking forward to upsetting them, yet it's a conversation that absolutely has to happen. And although at one level those look like really different kinds of conversations, functionally they're almost identical. So some of the stuff that we use to support our colleagues in having difficult conversations or doing a difficult thing in a, in a very kind of health setting, I think have potential to be applied absolutely anywhere. And in working in my local hospice on exactly this point, we ended up coming up with a little almost routine that people can use, which we've since used there a lot, and I use a lot in my training now, which is all about the idea of how to arrive properly. So people might be the same as me. Sometimes you're going from one task to another and you're already flustered from the last and your head's full of that and the task afterwards. And you know you've got a tricky thing coming up, but you're not really prepared for it. And yeah, you just blunder in the middle and you wing it. And often that works fine. And sometimes it doesn't. So the concept of not all the time, but on occasions when you know this is going to be a bit tricky and my own thoughts and feelings might begin to show up and get in the way. My own sort of fears or self-doubt or irritation might show up and make me handle this less well than I would want to. For those moments, then wouldn't it be great if you had a thing in your disposal that you could 
consciously arrive well for that conversation, that interaction. You know, at the moment you say, begin, I'm right for this. So what we came up with is just this little little sequence. And, and really, there's just four steps to it. And the first step is to come into the present moment. Right? And that sounds kind of grand. And if people have done lots of mindfulness, they know exactly what I mean. But we can mean this really simply. It's just take a moment. Instead of a busy head, just feel the ground under your feet. If you're sitting down, feel the chair underneath you. If you're standing up, just feel like you rub your hands a little against each other. So feel something's in the here and now. Notice this breath. <sighs> Come into the presence. That's the first one. Come present. The second is then set your intention. So what is it I'm about to try and achieve? Am I about to sort of break some bad news? Am I about to ask a difficult question? Am I about to ask for something? So just set your intention. We need to be flexible. We might need to change that. But know what it is you're trying to do. That's step two. Step three is engage your values. So how do I want to do this? Why does it matter? What kind of person do I want to be in doing this? You know, I want to be supportive. I want to be caring. I want to be firm. I want to be clear. So sort of engage your values. And then the fourth bit, and this is the bit that it will be easy for people to forget. The fourth bit is to engage your willingness. So what do I mean by that? Is to accept this is probably going to be tricky. Difficult thoughts and feelings may show up. Self-doubt may show up. And that's the price I'm willing to pay to do this thing well. Because, and just to put little brackets around this bit, because lots of us have a kind of rule of thumb in our head that if we are feeling bad, that means something is going wrong. What we learn in hospice care is that sometimes you have to go to a space where people, both parties are feeling bad to do the right thing. And that may be the same in other workplaces. I will feel bad. That's not a sign that something's going wrong. That's a sign that I'm actually addressing the thing that needs addressing. So I have to engage my willingness to feel bad or to have self-doubt or to think, oh, they're going to hate me. I've got to be willing to have that if that's what it takes to help this person understand how they can improve their performance, say. So four steps. Drop into the present moment. Set your intention. Connect to your values, engage your willingness, and in we go. And that's how to arrive. I want to clap, but it will make the microphone go funny. The clarity of those steps and the message will serve all of us in our lives. But I love the universality of it, the, the way that you relate it to, say, a palliative care nurse, yeah. but also to, to a manager having a difficult conversation with someone. I love when you got to that last step, the willingness, because that's so often you get to that yeah. point and then your body swerve, either physically <laughs> or mentally. You go, oh, it wasn't quite the right time to bring that up. And you don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. And look, those, those emotions and those thoughts, you know, we often say they can be messengers. Sometimes when you're feeling bad, it is a little canary in the cage to say, actually, you know what? You've, you've timed this badly. Oh, this isn't the right moment. We need to do something else. They can be messengers, but they're not a reliable sign that something's wrong. We have to be willing to have those feelings and thinking, yeah, this is because I'm a decent person. I don't like to see somebody 
feel bad. Mm. And I still need to do this. Such a wonderful takeaway. Thank you. Talking about in the workplace, we might be managers or leaders of or a colleague of someone with a long-term health condition. And that might be something they've had since birth, or it might be that something that's, that's happened to them. I don't think we're very good at having the conversations around that. Is there anything from your experience that you could help us with? I think one of the, again, this isn't at the heart of one of the core processes of psychological flexibility, but it's part of, I think, how to do it well is really applicable here. So when we have conversations with people who are struggling in whatever way for whatever reason, if our behaviour in having that conversation could be characterised by compassionate, respectful curiosity, I think that's probably about 70% of the, of the benefit. So if we can model compassion, so that is an appreciation that there might be difficulty here and an orientation to help, compassion curiosity now this is a bit often obviously you've got to be careful if people are saying I, I, I don't want to talk about this, this is private of course absolutely you, you don't go there but if it is important stuff then being appropriately curious and curious means you tell me I, i'm really sorry i don't understand what limitations that puts on this i, I need your help but curiosity in its for its own sake can be like nosiness so the curiosity needs to have a respectful quality. And of course, respectful in terms of language and stuff, hopefully that's absolutely baseline. But respectful in the sense of respecting that person's expertise. They are the expert in their condition. So we ask them and we listen carefully. It's not that we might not be able to add new things in, but we respect their position. So when we're curious, it's curious as in, you tell me, um, really, you know, and so we respect their position, and it is driven by compassion, which is the ability to notice and relate to the suffering of another human being, plus an orientation to help. So I think compassionate, respectful curiosity can be a really helpful way, rather than just being too embarrassed to ask, is there a limitation here? You can do it in a way that hopefully shouldn't offend. And then we can begin to understand the context the person is in and therefore what amendments for behaviour on our part or to the or to the environment or occasionally on their part might lead them to valued goals for them, which coordinate with valued goals for our organisation. Beautiful. You know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, blimey, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> it's a good word, blimey, isn't it? I do like blimey. This is why as psychologists, and not just us in our profession, but other professions need to go across the boundaries. Over the last two, three years, I've worked alongside clinical psychologists in organizational settings, and we've both brought a richness to the experience, I hope, for the participants. But also we've learned from each other. And there can be a tendency for us to be in that dreaded word silos and sort of sniping a bit at each other. And the more we come together, the more we can give people Absolutely. tools and in, in to help support them in yeah. their experience of what it's yeah. like to be a human. I think that's absolutely right, Ross. I think it is. And, you know, again, ma- many ways of approaching this. One of the beauties of this model, as, as of some others, is that it's not tied to how do I resolve the neurosis of having an inappropriate sexual attachment to a parent figure in early age. You know, as we were back, back in Freud times, 
well, that's, that's a really specific thing. It's kind of, people did try and scale all that up to organizational stuff in the sort of 40s and 50s. It was a disaster. A model like this that just says, how are people? What is it they want? How do they move towards it? What pushes them on course? What pushes them off? I was doing some teaching up in Liverpool that had clinical psychologists, uh, some counseling psychologists, some uh, mental health nurses. But for, for peculiar reasons, we also had a cohort of sports psychologists there. And I've done several blocks of teaching with them now. And they're great. And that we have an approach that speaks to organisational work, elite performing athletes, people in a hospital ward, executive coaching. That's something, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Ray, I'm going to start to draw our conversation to an end. It's been an absolute privilege to have you on the show. Thank you. I love your openness your creativity, but the, the clarity with which you bring your messages, I think it's so important for us all. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Well, thank you, Ross. And uh, and, and thank you to all the PSIP community is, uh, that sort of support this series of things that I've really enjoyed that give these sometimes majorly different perspectives and sometimes subtly different perspectives on the same things. It's a joy to be a part of it. Wow. Thanks, Ray. See you soon. See you soon. Okie dokie, P-Supers, that's it, in the bag. I'd like to thank Ray for being such a fabulous guest. If you like this episode or the podcast, could I invite you to share it with one other person? I'm really keen to spread the behavioural science and skills with more people. Of course, a subscription, rating or review are also very much appreciated. Some of you may have seen that I've had some lovely people soup bookmarks printed. If you'd like a couple, just send me your address, wherever you are in the world, and I'll pop a couple in the post. They'll help you keep your place. The show notes are at rossmackintosh.co.uk, and this includes links to a few different platforms. I love to hear from you, P-Supers, and you can get in touch at peoplesoup.pod at gmail.com. On Twitter, we're at peoplesouppod. On Instagram, at people.soup. And on Facebook, we are at People Soup Pod. Thanks to Andy Glenn for his spoon magic and to you for listening. Look after yourselves, peace supers, and bye for now. We mentioned Strictly. The first time we met was, was at Kirk and Patty's. Yes. At that folk music place, which is one of the places that they, that they use as a rehearsal space for Strictly. And one of the Strictly dancers was actually using the basement on one of the days we were there. We could shimmy there, right?